0: so bad off that Jesus had to die, but so loved by Him that He did it gladly. Willingly. Joyfully even. Scripture says that for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. Jesus loves you so deeply and so fully that He gladly Suffered and bled and died for you. And see, here's where transformation comes in. To be loved like that, to be loved so fully and thoroughly and deeply is life changing. To be loved like this is the source of our gospel transformation that I want to talk about this morning. And so it, it begs the question first and, and foremost, what exactly does the gospel change? What does it transform? And the answer is simply everything. Absolutely everything. There is nothing in us or about us that is left untouched by the gospel. going back to the Psalter this morning to Psalm 4 to see just one single example of gospel transformation and it's one that I think that you'll find applicable to a lot of situations in life we're going to look to David's life this morning just for one single example of part of that everything that the gospel changes look with me at Psalm 4 answer me when I call for you alone, O oh Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is God's inerrant, inspired, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you come now and be our helper. Be our teacher. Be the one who helps us to understand. Help us, Holy Spirit, to see Christ in these pages. To see His work and to see the lasting effect of His work. And would you change us now by these few minutes that we spend in the Word. Use this means of grace that's been provided to us. Change and transform us by the Gospel, even now. We pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but... I'm not sure who coined that little phrase, but it's rubbish. (laughs) The Tongue is a brutal weapon. We've all been hurt by it. We've all hurt others with it. David's Psalm here, Psalm 4, he has encountered the rubbishness of this little phrase. And there are no specific circumstances cited in this psalm about what led to this. It comes right on the heels of of Psalm 3, which we looked at a few weeks back, where he was dealing with the situation of of his son Absalom's betrayal and rebellion. Perhaps that is what is still at play here. Perhaps that's what is going on. It could have been something else. It, It doesn't really matter. The truth is David probably encountered lots of experiences as king where this psalm could have been the result. Words hurt. They hurt David. They hurt you. Perhaps even this week. Verse 2 of this psalm, David's sort of describing what's going on. Turning his honor into shame. Seeking after vain words and lies slandered David. They're trying to ruin his reputation. You've experienced this, right? How should we respond? If the gospel really does change everything, absolutely everything, how are we to respond when we're slandered? When we're the subject of gossip when we've been falsely accused I know what the two most instinctive responses are one would be to defend ourselves the other would be to retaliate but those are instinctive responses what would responses that have been transformed by the gospel look like? We've got several really good clues here in, in David's example. And there are things that would apply to any number of circumstances that we'll encounter in life. It doesn't just have to be gossip or slander or false accusations. So I want us to look at, at David's example and, and, and lift these things out of it. Um, but as I was thinking through this, I want to take just a second and, and answer a question that maybe some of you have in the back of your minds. I've been talking about gospel transformation, being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, but yet I'm taking us to the Old Testament and to an example of someone who lived before Christ. So how exactly does that work? Well, briefly, it works like this. Anyone past, present, or future who gets saved, who finds salvation, who finds rescue, is only saved through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's the only way. Right? Scripture outlines no other way to be saved. So, so the way it works is, is like this. The pe- God's people living before Christ came, were saved in their hope of a coming Christ. Those of us living on this side of the cross are saved in the Christ who has come. We're saved in our hope in the Christ who has come. Now obviously, Abraham and Moses and Joshua and David didn't understand all of the particulars of that. They didn't have the full picture that we have fully showing what Messiah would be, and do, and how that would all work out. But they understood enough. They understood enough to know that they had a problem that only God can solve. They understood enough of God's holiness and of their own sinfulness to know that salvation and rescue wasn't coming from within. They understood enough to know that they were looking for grace And mercy. And their lives were not only saved the same way ours are, their lives were transformed the same way ours are by continuing to trust in the one who loves us enough to reach down in grace and mercy and save us and transform us. They were saved by their hope in the coming Christ. We're saved by our hope in the Christ who has come. So just in case that question has been in the back of your minds about how gospel transformation could apply to folks who lived before Christ, there's just a brief answer. Now let's look at these clues from David's life. When we're transformed by the gospel, we'll respond to life's circumstances dependently. When David finds himself in this situation, the first thing he does there in verse 1 is he cries out. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. His knee-jerk reaction is not to embark on some campaign to set the record straight. It's not to retaliate. And as king, he really could have retaliated. To lash out at those who are dragging his name through the mud. He doesn't look at alternative resources. He's not gathering around friends and advisors and trying to say, all right, how can we fix this? What's our PR campaign going to look like to fix it and to spin it? The first thing he does is he cries out independence and he says, I need. And this is not some isolated event. He's cried out before, and he's received help. We see that right there from verse 1. You have given me, past tense, relief when I was, past tense, in distress. I'm looking back on what you've already done, and I'm crying out. I've got some confidence now. You've proven yourself before. I'm going to cry out to you again when we've been transformed by the gospel we cry out for help that's the very essence of the gospel we've got a problem we lack resources to handle it on our own and so we cry out the gospel changes and transforms us to be in fact less independent and more dependent that's gospel transformation Less of our own resources, more of his. The gospel also transforms us so that we respond to circumstances humbly. It's funny how this works. When we've been slandered, when we've been attacked, when we've been gossiped about, one of the things that it enables us to do is to feel a little self-righteous about ourselves. Right? When we've been wronged, And and sometimes things happen and and we just, right, the other person is clearly in the wrong. They have lied about us. (laughs) They have said things that absolutely are not true. And so we can begin to feel a little puffed up about ourselves. We like playing the role of innocent victim. Especially if we can avoid that first knee-jerk reaction to, to defend ourselves, or to, to lash out, then we might really begin to look down our noses at those pathetic sinners who've done this thing to us. And to somehow see ourselves as morally superior. It's this smugness that can come about. but the gospel transformed response is a humble response and it realizes that whatever righteousness we think we have is only relative we might be technically right in that moment about this situation I mean they've lied about us for goodness sake but whatever righteousness we think we have is only Relative. And, and see, David knows this. He gets this. That's why at the end of verse one, he says, Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. See, David gets it. He knows that if God answers his prayer, it's a gift, it's sheer grace. He doesn't deserve it. He doesn't say, Oh, you better answer me. No, he says, Be gracious. Be gracious, O oh God, and answer me. See, he knows that he might technically be in the right in this instance, but he is not innocent. There's only been one innocent victim. It wasn't David, and it's not you, and it's not me. The gospel brings about a transformation whereby we can honestly assess ourselves and we can realize that even on our best days we're still miserable offenders of God's holiness. All right? the, the very best things we come up with in our most shining moment still need to be forgiven Are still shot through at some level with impure motives, or wrong desires. And if any request we make is granted, it's going to be sheer grace. It'll be a gift. So as the gospel transforms us and changes us, we begin to respond to life circumstances. Even when we've been wronged, we begin to respond humbly. Now this next one on your outline says graciously, but I want you to scratch that. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write down thoughtfully, because that's the best word I could come up with. Because even since Friday when I printed the bulletins, I think maybe I'm uh, grasping these middle verses a little bit better than I did during the course of the week. Verses 4 through 6 show us what I believe is some important wrestling that has to go on in our gospel transformation. When the situations come up, right? When we find out that we've been gossiped about or lied about or slandered or whatever the case may be, you fill in the blank, whatever has happened this week, there's some wrestling, there's some thoughtful wrestling that needs to take place if we're going to fight against these knee-jerk reactions okay we've got to give the gospel some thought and let it shape our responses because let's just be honest okay gospel reactions are rarely intuitive and instinctive right we've got too much of a track record with our flesh right that's what wants to respond And we've got to be transformed and changed. And so, verse four, the flesh instantly wants to be angry. And so, David is either uh, preaching to himself here, or maybe he's got his followers around him who are a little hotheaded and want to lash out at the people who've done this. But he's got wise words here Be angry and do not sin. Instead, ponder. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, sleep on it, and most importantly, shut your mouth. All right? Give the gospel some time to do its work, give the Holy Spirit some time to massage down the truth of Scripture. And in the meantime, put a lid on it. Don't sin. Some wrestling that has to go on. We're not going to say the very first thing that comes to our mind when we find out we've been gossiped about. Rarely would that be a good thing. Verse 5 is perhaps the gospel key to this whole ordeal. To any ordeal that we face verse 5 offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord well when you look at scripture what are right sacrifices what are the sacrifices that are pleasing to the Lord it's not a bunch of stuff that we do right it's not a bunch of good deeds that we try to do to outweigh the bad no the sacrifices that please the Lord are broken and contrite heart. That's what pleases the Lord. That's a right sacrifice in the Lord's eyes. It's repentance. Our brokenness, our contrition, that's what the Lord is looking for. Offer that to the Lord and put your trust in the Lord. Remember back to those very first words of Jesus that I mentioned from Mark's Gospel? What two things did he say to do? Repent and believe the Gospel. Verse 5 right here. Offer right sacrifices. Repent. Put your trust in the Lord. Believe the Gospel. There it is. Repent and believe the Gospel. That's it. Over and over and over in the course of our lives, repent and believe. Repent and believe. We'll do it over and over and over and over. And so even when we're wronged, there's room for our repentance. And there's certainly room for our continuing to trust the Lord. Not our own scheming and Thoughts about retaliation and PR campaign? No. Repent and trust the Lord. So we've seen that here in verse 4, to be angry and to want revenge is a non-gospel transformed response. Verse 6 also hints at another non-gospel transformed response. And it's sort of on the other end of the spectrum. One end, we've got anger and retaliation. Uh, The other end, as we see in the first half of verse 6, would be despair and discouragement. That's just as much of a response that hasn't been transformed by the gospel. Look at the first part of 6. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Right? There's a note of despair here. There's a note of, this always happens to me this way, right? This this is just par for the course. It's always like this. They're, They're always talking about me. People are out to get me. The anger and desire for retaliation has to be wrestled with and fought against. So does the despair and the discouragement. And one of the biggest tools for that wrestling, one of the biggest tools to fight that despair and discouragement with is the next thing on your outline. When we've been transformed by the gospel, we respond to life circumstances with a big view of God. You see, a heart that's been transformed by the gospel not only is honest enough to be able to look at self and say, hey, I've been wronged, but I'm still sinful. I've been wronged, but I'm not innocent. A gospel-transformed heart and response also looks at how big their God is, how great He is, how incredibly majestic and wise and good and powerful He is. You see, as we're honest about ourselves, we begin to shrink in our own estimation. Right? We see just how much sin remains and has to be weeded out of our lives. And so we shrink in our own estimation, and God only continues to grow and grow and grow and increase in our sight. His holiness and His majesty and His goodness and His love. And so we see here in this psalm, David responds with a big view number 1 of god's sovereignty you see that in verse 3 but no he's telling his enemies now but no that the lord has set apart the godly for himself the lord hears when i call to him and so he's telling his enemies this but he also ends up encouraging himself in the process when he's rehearsing once again, the things that he knows to be true about his God. The Lord has set apart. See, this was his doing, not David's. David wasn't king because he was big and strong and impressive. You remember when he was set apart as king, he was almost forgotten about. He was the runt out in the fields with the sheep. Uh, Isn't there one more son left? Yeah, that was David. He was king because the Lord chose him to be king. God's gonna finish what he started. He's not gonna set David apart as king then to forget about him and to leave him on his own. He's not gonna abandon him. He started this thing, he'll see it through. It's interesting this word for set apart, the Lord has set apart the godly for himself, is the same word used in Exodus when God's people are set apart from the plagues and they don't experience the plagues the same way the Egyptians do. They're protected from the plagues, they're preserved, they're set apart. Lord sets apart those that he's called, that he's chosen. He protects. He's not going to abandon. And so that leaves David at a place where he can say, you know what? He'll take care of me. I don't have to take this into my own hands. He will take care of me. We also see David responding with a big view of God's goodness. In the first part of verse 6, there's a hint of despair, but then there's a shift that takes place in the second half where folks begin to ask the Lord for the right thing in that. The second half, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Now that ought to remind you of something from earlier in the Old Testament. Lift up The light of your face upon us there's a very famous blessing that Aaron gives to God's people in number 6 and it is a very common benediction that ministers will use to send you out on Sunday mornings we see that in number 6 the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you that's a benediction that's a blessing not from Aaron but from the Lord and so that's the right thing to begin to seek of the Lord that's what David is beginning to hang his hat on here is a big view of God's goodness he is good and he is gracious and he longs to bless his people and David has come to expect this of his God The gospel changes us and transforms us so that we begin to expect God to be who He says He is and to do what He says He will do. His sovereignty and His goodness, among other things, as part of a big view of God, give us great rest and confidence. And we see that in our, on the last thing of your outline. When we're transformed by the gospel, we respond to life's circumstances with a new perspective this new perspective is the real evidence of a changed heart verse 7 you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound you see there's a contrast here between real joy and pseudo joy For David here, even in the midst of being slandered and attacked, there's something going on in his heart that he just can't even really explain. It's joy. And it doesn't make any sense by the world's way of looking at things. Because you see the example of worldly pseudo-joy is based on circumstance. It's based on... Temporary, external things like the abundance of food and wine. But the gospel transformed perspective on things realizes that joy isn't tied to circumstance. In fact, it can transcend circumstance. And even in the midst of great adversity, I can experience real joy and so admittedly this is abnormal right this is not natural this is not your knee jerk response to adversity but it is the proof of the gospel doing its work it's the proof of change taking place from the inside and making its way out a great evidence of the gospel at work is in verse 8 And it's striking that we don't see that anything has changed in the situation yet externally. Right? No resolution to the slander. None of that has changed. The change has all been internal. The change has all been on David's part. So then in verse 8 he says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. Right? The and there is important. right? Because we can lay down. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we're not going to toss and turn and fret and worry about this thing until morning. But David says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Nothing about his external circumstances changed. But now the anxiety has been changed to Peace to confidence, to safety. And yes, this is abnormal. This is unnatural, right? We don't want the natural here because the natural fleshly knee-jerk response is defend ourselves and seek to retaliate. No, what we want really is not natural. It's supernatural. It has to be affected from within by a power from without And that's gospel transformation. That's changes on the inside from a power outside of ourselves. And it's not just saying, all right, well, this is what a good good Christian response should look like. So this is how I'm going to respond. That's not it. That's behavior modification. Right? There's nothing Christian about that. Anybody can try that. It's not gritting our teeth. It's not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's not hunkering down. It's not redoubling our efforts. It's crying out. Dependently. I need help. Expectantly. You've done it before. I think you'll do it again. With a big view of God. You're in control. You're great. You're good. Cry out and you say, Lord, you have to do this. And he will. And he will. So the next time you're the subject of gossip, the next time you've been lied about, or fill in the blank, whatever it's going to be for you this week, I want you to look for some of these evidences of the gospel at work in your life. And where they're not there, I want you to look for ways to cultivate evidences of the gospel take some time and think think about the gospel take some time on your beds with your mouths closed and think about the gospel and think about this great god that we have and how his goodness and mercy and grace come to bear on even the mundane everyday things like being gossiped about Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You are the same God today as You were yesterday and You will be the same God tomorrow. We thank You that You have always been about dealing with us with grace and with mercy and never about what we could earn or deserve because that would be very, very little. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you this morning for a gospel that not only saves but transforms. Lord, you save us just as we are, but you don't leave us there. And we thank you for that and we praise you for it. And we pray for your help to see the ways in which the gospel has already been changing and transforming us so that that might be an encouragement to us but we pray for grace and faith to trust You for all that remains to be changed and transformed. Lord, let us not be discouraged about all that is left to be done, but let us be encouraged by the fact that You started this and You will finish it. So Lord, help us to look to You. Help us to lie down on our beds with closed mouths and open hearts and minds that we might ponder the gospel. That we might ponder you and your goodness and your sovereignty. And that we might see that bear fruit in our lives. We love you and we thank you. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.